Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 74, and today we are talking all about gluten. While we maintain that a gluten-free diet and even grain-free can be the best choice for many, there's always some question of whether gluten-free is healthy for everybody and and why somebody who doesn't have to avoid gluten gluten still might want to avoid it. So if you're still eating it, listen up because this episode might have some gems for you. And I think this episode could be a good one to share with a friend or family member who is still consuming that abusive boyfriend of gluten. That's, that's what I call it. And, and for better or worse, I've, I was told when I was uh, writing a draft of a, my book that that was inappropriate term, but um, you know, I, I get it. Uh, but the idea is it's that kind of, you know, tastes so good on, on your lips, makes you come back, it hurts so good type thing. And we usually get a, a pretty bad reaction. If not, some of us are at a state where maybe we don't have enough sensitivity within our body, or maybe we have a really optimal gut lining and gut biome where we are able to tolerate gluten. But today we will talk about some of the arguments of a recent article that came out actually uh, in just January of this year that was stated, is there a downside to going gluten-free if you're healthy in the New York Times? So we will kind of combat some of those arguments about a gluten-free diet being too low in fiber. Um, and then we'll also talk about some of the things, like Becky said, if you still are eating gluten, that you may want to consider removing it for good and kicking that boyfriend to the curb <laughs> and creating a healthier relationship maybe with an alternative food. Awesome. So yeah, I feel like every couple of years, something like this New York Times article comes out and clients come running like, oh, you have me on gluten-free. Are you sure this is healthy? And like, you're getting so much fiber and you don't even know. <laughs> right, right. For sure. <laughs> uh, so let's start off with just defining the difference between gluten sensitivity and celiac disease and kind of um, the difference in, in frequency and also kind of how gluten sensitivity can act on or uh, live on a spectrum a little bit? Sure, so as of now, it's estimated that there's over 200 million Americans that have celiac disease. And celiac disease is an autoimmune condition where the intestinal lining actually gets destructed or, or breaks down or damaged with a response to gluten. So glute, when gluten exposure hits the intestinal lining, there is substantial intestinal permeability and damage with a celiac individual. Um, and gluten sensitivity is someone that can have an inflammatory response and some level of what would be called in the medical field intestinal enteropathy or permeability. So there still can be intestinal lining damage. It's just to a less severity level of someone in the spectrum all the way a full-blown diagnosed celiac disease. And with celiac disease, we're talking specific to someone that has an autoimmune reaction to gluten 
However, what we'll learn and discuss today is that gluten can still play a role in a myriad of autoimmune conditions, even if you don't have autoimmune-based celiac disease, because of the role that gluten plays on the gut lining for all individuals. So, you know, like I said, it, it's about 2 million individuals that are diagnosed. It's estimated that there's at least double that out there, but that we're just not testing as aggressively. And the other end of the spectrum is so many people have now eliminated it because they've gone, you know, more paleo or keto or a cleaner eating diet or just chose to go gluten-free. And the testing that diagnoses for celiac disease looks at an antigen relationship or a protein immunological relationship that needs to have the presence of gluten-based foods in the bloodstream to get a diagnostic positive. So there's some people that would test a false negative based on not consuming, and then some people that just aren't getting tested and are avoiding anyway. Okay, awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's talk about why the rise in gluten sensitivity and celiac disease and why gluten today is such a big issue. Yeah, so it's, it's two-part spectrum, but one of the biggest hits is on what types of grains and grain products are in the marketplace today. So, you know, gluten is a protein component in a couple different grains. So wheat is the main one that we think of, but there are many gluten-containing grains. So wheat, rye, spelt, barley, um, and then many, um, some oats, uh, and that's why we look for certified gluten-free oats. Uh, based on definitely cross-contamination, but also some strains. And then when we use the term gliadin, gliadin is a specific protein in wheat, um, which is within that gluten-containing grain family. And when we look at the rise, it really has a lot of connection due to something called short dwarf uh, or clear field wheat. And um, this was talked about a lot or brought to the, the conversation of, of, I think, the dinner table, or at least in nutrition practitioners, um, when we saw the book Wheat Belly hit the market. And mm -hmm. I think that's where we really started to learn a lot deeper um, about this relationship of this hybridized, industrialized crop. And as I researched it further, um, we found that you know the yield of short dwarf wheat was actually brought into research based on um, the industry and connection with the military and our draft-based population by weight being too low of weight uh, between World One and World Two, and so there were these big initiatives by governmental funding with the agricultural institutes to bring up obesogenic crops. And short dwarf wheat is one of those obesogenic crops. So, so wild. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it hit the marketplace in the 80s. And what's interesting is this also compounded at the time when the food pyramid was recommending eight to 11 slices of quote unquote whole grain products, right? Per day, eight to 11 slices of bread. Wow. And, you know, this was recommended at the base of the food pyramid at the same time in the 80s that this processed, hybridized, fat causing, pro inflammatory, higher gliadin, um, so higher inflammatory protein compound in that wheat 
hit the market. And that's the same time also that the American Heart Association was telling us to eat more whole grains. So we started doing more of the um, you know, higher fiber, higher wheat containing products, which were more dense in this pro-inflammatory gliadin. So that's actually just one part of it. So, you know, based on the hybridization and the crop that we now call wheat is a different beast than the older heirloom varietals of um, like a, a stone ground uh, red wheat or some of the European varietals out there or, um, oh, Becky, what's the name of the... Uh, like Jovial is one of the brands. Einkorn wheat. Einkorn, thank yep. you, yes. Yep. So Einkorn with E-I-N is another um, form of a more heirloom varietal. But the short dwarf has significantly higher amounts of the gliadin and a higher yield, and um, it is obesogenic. So that was a big change. And then the recommendation to eat more of this crop and to eat more of this crop with more wheat in a whole wheat form, right, um, or added wheat fiber, um, defatted wheat germ was added to a lot of products. And then the other piece is the sterility factor that as we've gone through modern day society, we have substantially less diversity in our gut microbiome. So we have chlorine in our tap water, we have fluoride in our toothpaste and also our drinking water and all of these things that sterilize our gut. And that makes our gut more susceptible to damage. So I think it's a double hit on both ends of the spectrum. Okay, awesome. So that's really helpful in, in understanding why wheat in the U.S. might be a problem. Um, but oftentimes I hear from clients and in my own travel experience as well that um, you know, going to Europe, someone could indulge in some pasta in Italy or a baguette in France with no issue. So a couple things are also at factor here. One of them is definitely a connection of stress. And so when we're looking at the stress response on the body, we've talked before about how you can be in fight or flight mode, which is that excitatory stress response, or which is that, that uh, you know, reactive, or you can be in the rest and digest mode, right? Which is the more mellow out time stamp when you're not stressed. And unfortunately, when well, the good thing with travel is often, you know, if we're at a villa in Italy, <laughs> we should be very relaxed. I, I, have, I haven't been, but I would imagine I would be very relaxed. Um, I don't know and, whose vacations these are, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm dreamy. And um, yeah, so during that time frame, I would have, you know, definitely a more uh, digestive enzymes being produced. So that plays a huge role. There's one particular enzyme of focus um, called DPP4, um, dipeptidyl peptidase 4, but we can all call it DPP4. But it has been shown in research to be involved directly with the breakdown of these proline-rich proteins, which are found in gliadin specifically, and it helps to modulate the immune response. So when you're more relaxed, you actually produce about four times the amount of digestive enzymes, and you may be manufacturing higher amount of this DPP4. Also, your immune system might be on less alert because you're not in fight or flight mode. So your immune system isn't like, hey, 
what's that? Pow, pow, pow. I'm going to get it. You know, so you're not going to have as much, at least that's what my immune system does. Um, <laughs> like a cartoon character. Um, and so, you know, you're not going to get as much of that immune reactivity or hypervigilant response when the surveillance system or the immune system is more mellowed out. So another thing we think of is, for instance, secretory IgA and glutamate. These are both markers that we see in research with stress that tend to have reactivity. So secretory IgA is a big marker of our salivary output that can be a driver of stress response. It's kind of like cortisol, where there's a sweet spot in the middle. It goes really high with an acute acting, and over time it goes really low. We can also look at IgA in the gut based on a stool sample. And IgA is a marker of leaky gut. So if the body is not stressed, the immunological gut lining will be intact more so and we'll have less gut damage so we should have less reactivity to the gluten so that kind of follows the same argument but that's speaking more to the integrity of the gut lining versus the enzyme production but both of those play a role with structure and function of why we may better tolerate the gluten overseas and then there's also the fact that when we're not under stress we'll have a better good biome function so we won't have as much sterility in our gut microbiome so probiotics remember play a role in the end products of digestion so they actually eat away at the foods that we eat and can help to metabolize and break down food particles and that's why we tend to say that sourdough bread is more tolerated than other breads and that's because sourdough bread is you know cultured so the probacteria in that uh, dough that's that's carried in that fermentation process actually breaks down some of the gliadin in the bread making process outside of your body. But that's the same way that those probiotics work inside of your body. So definitely when your bacteria state is optimized, you break down gluten and, and uh, gluten containing grains in a different way. Um, so, so many factors. And then the fact that overseas, you might not be eating the short dwarf wheat, which is again, substantially higher. I believe hundreds of times higher in the gliadin inflammatory compound. It's pretty wild. And gosh, I really miss sourdough. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was thinking about it um, when we were preparing for this. Um, so I used to be able to indulge in um, gluten about twice a month. Actually, I would do a hard loaf of sourdough at feast when they were around, um, mm -hmm. which they oh did. Gosh. Yeah, they like brought this, um, and I forget, pardon my ignorance, you guys, but I forget what exact culture is used. It's some form of a lacto culture that's used in sourdough. It's, a, I believe, a lacto fermentation, but they had like an old or old world culture that they had brought back, like hundreds of years old. And their sourdough bread had just so much character and it had that hard, toothy crust. It was worth it with a big old slab of grass fed butter. Um, and I used to be able to tolerate that like once a month. And then I would even indulge in a, I had this chocolate croissant thing with um, Revival Market. From Revi I was going to yeah. say it had to be Revival. <laughs> For sure. They used lard. They used pasture-raised leaf lard in it. It was just super dreamy. And that was like, I would have a cortado in that. And it was like, boom, um, life was good. And um, then as my practice picked up, as stress levels picked up, as especially if I was having any autoimmune flares, I would have a lot of GI distension, bloating, and sometimes chronic constipation after having consumption of the gluten. 
And then post Stella, this is the wild part. You know, I, a lot of times autoimmune disease gets suppressed during pregnancy because your body, your that's how your body allows yourself to carry the child. You know, it suppresses your immune system so that your body doesn't attack this foreign invader or parasite in you, which is your baby. It's not a parasite. <laughs> um, and so, you know, most people with autoimmune disease feel their best during pregnancy. I don't think that that was me. If you've listened to my pregnancy podcast, but anyway. Um, I was able to have some indulgences, but I ended up going strict gluten-free during my pregnancy because I just didn't want any of the inflammatory elements that we'll speak to in a moment. Um, so I was really strict during my entire pregnancy. And then I had a really crazy C-section where I was on IV antibiotics and I had a really disruptive you know, removal uh, in the C-section where actually my intestines had to be slightly well, removed actually, a totally weird, funky C-section because she was fused in my uterus, all the things. But I tried pizza when Stella was two months and I distinctively remember, I was like, you know what? Like, let's just have a pizza night. And I was bellied over the most reactive gluten reaction I've had where I told Brady, I was like, I would have you drive me to the hospital if I wasn't 100% confident that I did this to myself with the pizza. Like I, it was stabbing knives. I was keeled over and I was debilitated in pain. Um, and so I have not <laughs> craved sourdough sin. I was, I'm like, no, no, no. And, and now, and that was kind of the inspiration of doing this episode is I think even in my past, when I've been gluten-free, if I've been on a carb consuming day, I may not have requested the, the specifics of, you know, how potatoes if they're, if they're coated in flour, there was in fact a restaurant that I was eating potatoes at that I didn't even know they were flour coated um, or certain sauces. So today we want to empower you guys on the level of, you know, the ingredient as a secondary ingredient in many dishes so that you can get the big spectrum of the anti-inflammatory support within your body beyond avoiding the gluten in its most kind of common scene space, like croissants and breads and pasta and pizza and things like that. Oh yeah, it can be real sneaky. And I think we've both had the experience of getting glutened by accident at mm -hmm. dinner and just feeling really off the next day. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like like hand swelling, yeah. joint pain. Yeah. Oh yeah. All of the things. <laughs> um, so let's talk about um, another condition that can be caused by gluten consumption. You alluded to leaky gut. Yes. And let's make sure that we talk about what exactly gliadin and zonulin are here as well. Okay. So, you know, leaky gut is that fancy term that I mentioned, which is intestinal enteropathy, um, which is just a medical term for leaky gut, essentially. And it's a condition where something, in this case, the gliadin protein in wheat, um, but something can damage the villi. Um, so there's villi and microvilli. And we have these like finger-like projections that line our small intestines. And these scoot food particles along the intestinal lining. And in the uh, kind of spaces between these finger-like projections is where there's these brush borders along the microvilli. So there's villi big fingers and there's microvilli tiny little fingers that line the fingers. And um, along there is these brush border enzymes and it scoots tiny food particles. And that's where along that area of space is where we're supposed to absorb our nutrients. And they're supposed to, that villi is supposed to scoot the larger particles out down into the large intestine um, to be, you know, to be 
finally reabsorb the nutrients that are available in the colon. But typically the colon is just doing the electrolytes, the B12 and the water absorption and more so creating the bowel mass um, with the bacteria. So along that uh, villi is where we absorb nutrients. Now, if the villi get damaged, we start to get larger spaces between these finger-like projections. So if you're taking your two hands and they're tight together, if you separate your fingers, you're gonna see larger space. So what happens in this scenario is um, there are larger particles than desired passing into the bloodstream, and this can cause autoimmune-like reactivity. And this is leaky gut. So basically, the finger-like projections either get damaged or the junctions that keep them tight, the tight junctions have signaling that affect them to loosen. And zonulin plays a big role within that. So zonulin um, plays a role with the junction tightening, essentially, <laughs> is the easiest way to say it. And this is really new discovering in the last decade or so. So in 2006, there was a Scandinavian journal of gastroenterology that clearly showed that gliadin can affect zonulin in people even without the celiac gene or without the celiac autoimmune reactivity. So it demonstrated that zonulin levels go up, um, which is going to increase the intestinal permeability in the presence of the gliadin compound. And again, gliadin is the active protein particle in wheat. So that short dwarf wheat, which has higher gliadin, has higher reactivity to increase this zonulin, which is going to drive more of this leaky gut response. Got it. So this could be on just... Um increased gluten sensitivity and autoimmune disease. I think this is a big driver between the high food sensitivities as well. Yeah. So some people call zonulin as the doorway to leaky mm -hmm. gut, basically. You know, it, it, yeah. yeah, it's that gateway. It, it, it opens the spaces. It's, it, it's opening space so that any food particle can come through. Exactly, Becky. And so that means that you could all of a sudden become more reactive to avocado. If that's a commonly consumed food, you may not actually even react to the gluten, but some of the foods that you commonly consume, because the zonulin increases based on the presence of the gliadin, that's going to open the doors so that the food particles that you consume more frequently get into the bloodstream and the immune system, just like a high pollen day, starts to say, I'm going to have an inflammatory response to whatever this is that's commonly getting in my way because it's not, it doesn't belong here. And the reality is it doesn't belong there. The junctions are supposed to stay nice and tight and those large food particles are supposed to be further broken down by optimal enzymes, good bacteria, right? And be scooted further down the intestinal lining when they're broken down smaller and are able to be um, you know, absorbed in the intestinal lining. So this leaky gut can definitely be drawn by the gliadin. Um, and again, that's the particle that we find in wheat. Um, and so it, there is a direct connection of leaky gut regardless of if we have reaction to the gluten itself, gluten does drive leaky gut in all individuals. Awesome, that's really helpful. And then um, what about, let's talk about the presence of other anti-nutrients in gluten and, and grains that might replace gluten as well. 
Yeah. So, you know, there's this concept of anti-nutrients and what that basically means is uh, something that blocks absorption um, or utilization, right? So there are compounds like phytates that are high seen in grains and also lectins. And this is kind of some of the big arguments that we see with like the paleo diet. So lectins are in really high quantities in legumes and in wheat. Um, and what they tend to do is they penetrate the cells of the lining of the intestinal lining and can create damage um, in, the, in that, that gentle, delicate lining of the epithelial. And so the epithelial is just the very tender lining of the gut. And so this is more of like a mechanical damage. So these are like hardy, big particles. Um, and they basically, the idea is it's one of the plant survival mechanisms <laughs> to not be able to be absorbed and to actually damage the host or the who's consuming the lectin-based um, foods. And that's why, you know, we as humans, and we look at kind of the paleo diet and things like that, we couldn't absorb and eat these grains until they were cooked, right? And so, you know, the plant's natural defense is that if you eat these, you're going to go belly over. <laughs> like you're going to cramp and bloat and have gas and indigestion. And the other thing that's interesting is you're not going to probably absorb the nutrients that are in this food. And that goes back to the phytic acid or the phytates. So this also looks at, you know, with more of a traditional like Weston A. Price approach to eating gluten, soaking your grains helps to break down the phytic acid, especially if you add a little bit of acid in there or lactobacillus. So adding like the um, liquid uh, whey from your yogurt into your soaking grains can break down the phytic acid um, and help with absorption of things like vitamin A and, and vitamin C and zinc and magnesium. Um, but if we don't break down the phytates in soaking and or sprouting the grains, um, you know, even cooking the grains, we're not going to get optimal absorption. So both lectins and phytates have anti-nutrient influence and lectins actually have gut damaging properties. Okay. Awesome. So, well, not awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Unawesome. Not that awesome. The opposite of awesome, but that's an awesome <laughs> description. I think that's really helpful. Um, and yeah, I always say- Plants don't want to be eaten. Plants like this are, you know, they're just defending themselves. Right, right. And, and that's where we have to look at kind of our roots of what the most nutritionally dense foods are. And there's reason why certain things were avoided. And there's also reason why there was traditional consumption of foods. And the more industrialized our food system gets, the further away from that. So again, going back to the timestamp when we soaked our grains and we milled our grains from whole and we allowed them to activate their nutritional density and reduce that phytic acid and lectins. And we weren't stressed with smartphones and, you know, never being off the work clock and all this blue light and all of the sterility factor and heirloom grains, maybe it wasn't an issue, but here we are today. You know? There's so many, so yeah. many factors at play. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. Let's get into symptoms of gluten sensitivity. Pardon the garbage truck that you guys can probably. <laughs> That's all right. That's my Monday morning. <laughs> um, so yeah, so gluten sensitivity, uh, literally, you know, we can go from anxiety to zits, honestly. It, it, it's a whole big gamut of different symptoms that can be associated. And um, then there's conditions as well. So we'll start with symptoms first. So chronic fatigue syndrome, headaches or migraines, um, a lot of dermatological concerns like from mouth sores and ulcerations to um, 
keratosis paralysis, which is like the uh, raised dot, the raised um, hardened dots on the skin. The t- chicken the type skin. Of, yep, chicken skin yeah. and um, eczema, especially. That's one of the first things we definitely want to pull out from our kiddos when they're having sensitivity like eczema. Um, constipation, bloating, diarrhea, any GI disruption can be definitely gluten sensitivity. Joint pain is a very common one, as well as nerve pain. Inflammatory reactions like swelling, uh, damage to the intestine, driving more food sensitivities or more food allergies, brain fog and anxiety and depression. And I want to speak to that a little bit more specifically in a moment. Um, And then beyond eczema and psoriasis, we can see acne, brittle nails, and then there is definitely a connection within hypothyroidism. Yes, so a whole gamut of symptoms that you wouldn't necessarily associate to gluten until maybe you pull it out of the diet and you see some of those resolve. Um, Let's talk about specific conditions or um, disease states or symptoms um, that we would use a gluten-free diet as one of the primary parts of someone's treatment. Yeah. So like I mentioned, because it plays a role with leaky gut and because when we have leaky gut, there's more inflammatory immunological activity, one could argue that all autoimmune conditions should strictly eliminate gluten in all ways, shapes, and forms because that is the root cause in many cases, or at least a root contributor to autoimmune disease, right? So whether it was the Achilles heel and the antecedent and driver, or whether it just plays a role in the expression of autoimmune disease, leaky gut is absolutely a factor, right? So, uh, you know, from from things like uh, multiple sclerosis to even looking at things like uh, um, Hashimoto's, which we'll speak to, there is a direct thyroid connection and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, you know, any autoimmune disease, um, it would definitely be a strong argument to pull that out. Um, and then when we're talking specific to looking at um, gluten and thyroid, there is interference with the protein compound in um, gluten and the active thyroid hormone. Um, and so th- there can be a mimicking influence. And when we're looking at our tissue um, transglutaminase and we're looking at our um, thyroid uh, globulin compounds and um, the way that the thyroid acts on our um, thyroid antibodies, the thyroid antibodies and thyroid globulins, we can see a big um, connection with gluten sensitivity and that gluten binding. Um, So Hashimoto's for sure is a big condition where we definitely strongly avoid gluten in all ways, shapes, and forms. And then um, also rheumatoid arthritis has been shown actually a lot of research with the gliadin driving inflammatory reaction in joints. Um, And then IBS and IBD, absolutely a specific one we would look at. And then there is a lot of interesting research, and especially as I kind of delved into the rabbit hole with my anti-anxiety diet book, in the role of gluten in psychiatric conditions. So we've seen in anxiety to the level of panic attack and depression, um, between 21 to 27% increase in um, reactivity when gluten is consumed or reduction in symptoms when removed. Um, And that goes even to things like bipolar and schizophrenia. And a lot of this ties to the antibody immunological relationship on the gliadin itself. And also a lot of it ties to the fact that there is opioid 
like reactivity within the gluten family. And so there's opioid influence with both casein and gluten, and um, that can play a huge role with our body's uh, mental health and mental stability and, and mood management and addictive tendencies, which is what can drive the short dwarf wheat, which is already more dense in calorie structure and already more pro-inflammatory. Um, and then we have the food addictive tendency to drive us to overeat. Well, that's the trifecta of why, you know, we're all fat and sick and tired in this country. And like the rise of mood disorders for sure could yeah. probably be tied in there too. For sure. For sure. It's, it's just like drug addiction with opioids. You get that high and you need more and more and more to cross that, that you know, to get that, that signal of satisfaction. Absolutely. Okay. So if someone doesn't have one of these conditions or they don't really have the symptoms that we spoke of, should they still avoid gluten? Absolutely, because you know there's the mechanism of a it's pro-inflammatory. And when I was doing research for MD Anderson, I was having a really difficult time making the stage three breast cancer food as medicine plan as gluten free. I had to argue and argue and argue and argue with the board about you know the cancer-free diet being gluten-free because their whole argument was well gluten doesn't cause cancer. And I had an array, I mean, I'm talking 20 plus peer reviewed literature journals within a five year timestamp of that time that I was presenting this argument of gluten causing intestinal permeability and gluten causing inflammation. So, you know, if cancer drives its signaling and growth via inflammation and an unstable immune system, which is seen with gut damage it drives cancer expression, One, that's not that far of a leap <laughs> to say that a high gluten diet drives cancer or that avoiding and eliminating gluten strictly can help to rebound from cancer or help to drive remission. So I think one can argue because of the role of its pro-inflammatory activity and its immunological distressing activity, um, and then the role of mental health and addictive tendencies across the board, I think that it's something that should definitely be avoided. And for some individuals, like I mentioned, I think a mindful indulgence of consuming gluten in its most uh, heirloom forms or most traditional forms is within reason, but it really should not be a staple in our diet. And it really should not be touted by anyone as a health food. Sure. So maybe a croissant in Italy or something like that. Right. And, and taking, we'll talk about some of the precautionary things that you can mm -hmm. take to support your body, but absolutely. You know, I, 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 my goal is never to fear monger. It's to empower, but I just want to make very clear that it is not in any way, shape or imagination, a health supporting food. Whole wheat is not an, a health supporting food any longer. Croissants are French, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just said Italy. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's. Clearly, I'm sure there are two. Clearly, I haven't eaten one in a very long time. Um, let's talk about some of the hidden sources of gluten. So even if we're doing paleo or keto and trying to avoid gluten, um, but we're ordering off a restaurant, restaurant menu, we might not be you know, completely safe even in that case. 
Yes. So like I mentioned with my potato example, um, you know, especially during pregnancy, I, I was doing a little higher carb and well, not a little, I was, I was doing like 90 to 120 grams, mostly 90, someday 60. I really listened to my body and I recommend everyone to listen to your body when you're pregnant. I, I don't recommend being structured or I have a lot of people with all of the keto work that I do asking about ketosis during pregnancy. And I think anything that you're restricting is not a good thing. But on the sense of qualitative restriction, like inflammation, that can be a good thing. So, um, you know, things that are dredged though, like I said, I was eating like uh, maybe Yukon gold potatoes or sweet potatoes or sauces. So anything that can be dredged, this is proteins or starchy vegetables or anything like even uh, fried green beans, things like that. Always making sure that of course it's not obvious like the breaded or floured, like floured uh dredged and then soaked in egg batter, that would be more of an obvious gluten, but some things you wouldn't be able to tell based on the texture. So checking on, on that sense of any form of dredging. And then we also would look for like pan sauces, um, uh, things that are reduced, like even if it's like a gravy, a lot of times wheat flour or just white flour, right? That also has the gluten um, is going to be used as a thickener. So white flour is used often as a thickener. A lot of condiments, unfortunately, can even have binders that contain gluten. So um, like from uh, sauces and um, even salad dressings to watch out for. Uh, and then adding like... Um, batters into scrambled eggs is surprising, but that's been seen. Um, and so to make fluffier egg products, I've seen flour being added, um, added to thicken mashed potatoes. So things that we might think would be grain-free. A lot of restaurants luckily are adding, you know, gluten-free on their menu. And what's really cool is even a lot of the, the like more foodie based things, um, I love out in Austin here, for instance, Odd Duck is like a farm to table restaurant, which does really fancy food and they have a specific gluten-free menu. So it really makes me feel confident down to the level of exact ingredients and no contamination. Another common one we don't think of often is soy sauce. So yes. a lot of that umami flavor, um, like in our sushi rolls is going to have gluten in there. So you need to sub out either tamari, which isn't soy-free, but that is wheat-free, um, or coconut aminos, which is soy-free and wheat-free or gluten-free. Have you seen the coconut aminos in the little packets, Allie? Yeah, yeah. I'm so psyched about that because I can't do soy at all. It does not like me. So. Oh yeah, I remember that from your cleanse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, yeah, you know, we'll we'll have to link those in our Amazon store yes, that we're reviewing. Um, there's a lot of uh, you know convenient things you can throw into your purse, and then otherwise sushi, of course, would be gluten free. Um, but of course, the fancier rolls with all the sauces and stuff, we'd want to really just go to like a sashimi, something really plain, and then using those coconut am am aminos. So before we go into our favorite swap outs, because I know people are wondering what they can eat versus what they cannot eat or what to avoid versus include, let's just have a quick word from our sponsor, Health IQ, a life insurance agency that provides savings for health conscious individuals. Yes, we are so happy to share that this Naturally Nourished podcast episode is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps you listeners who are mindful and proactive about your wellness to get lower rates on life insurance. You can go to healthiq.com backslash Allie Miller RD to get details on how you qualify. 
Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people like you guys, our listeners. In fact, 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance. So we are super pumped to share this as an opportunity for you all to get a return on the investment of your well care. Health IQ can save our customers up to 33% because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to those who are inactive. So with less disease risk, you're already winning, but you might as well get a little bit of money savings in addition to feeling better within your body. So to see if you qualify and get your free quote today, go on over to healthiq.com backslash RD or mention the promo code RD when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Awesome. That's on my adulting list still. We keep talking about it. So to get life insurance too. <laughs> you know, a couple more episodes to wrap around and get that rap- rocking. <laughs> exactly. Um, so let's talk a little bit about alternatives for baking because that's probably the biggest area where I get lots of requests for substitution ideas. So what are your thoughts on gluten-free flour mixes versus things like nut flours versus... Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's always a good, better, best spectrum. And I know we're sitting here talking about chocolate croissants and (laughs) sourdough bread, and you can do a a lot of swap outs as far as when you go gluten-free. And a lot of them can be actually superior on a nutritional scale. And so whenever we're looking at a replacement, we want to know what is it comprised of and kind of determine a good, better, best approach. So generally speaking, you know, there are like, uh, for instance, Thomas Keller, who's a really renowned chef. He has, I think it's called cup for cup, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. mm -hmm. And it's a flour, a gluten-free flour blend. So it uses like tapioca starch and it uses potato starch and I believe a little bit of rice flour and I'm sure a couple other things in there. So that's a, you know, gluten-free flour blend that apparently is supposed to be cup for cup equivalent to use across the board, kind of broad spectrum for like breads that rise and uh, cookies and cakes and all those things. Now, to me, that would still be considered more of a processed refined food because a lot of those, uh, you know, flour replacers are still quite milled and refined and you're getting a, you know, homogenous or one single texture, (laughs) bright white, shiny flour, (laughs) not shiny really, but you know, it's pretty refined. Um, So it goes through a lot of processing and, you know, decoloring and all of that stuff. I like to stick closest to whole food options. So my favorite options for baking would be uh, nut flours, or some people call them nut meals or coconut flour. So I like to use almond flour, hazelnut flour. I also have been playing with a little bit of coconut flour, but I think that it's important to note that coconut flour is definitely not a cup for cup replacement. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) You will be eating like a very, it's like it sucks the moisture out of your mouth, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sure does. Um, poor Stella, (laughs) when I made her first birthday cake, we did good because I had played with it luckily, but for a baby that has never been introduced to grains, her, uh, first birthday cake had a combination of almond flour 
coconut flour, banana, and then eggs. A whole dozen eggs actually were in her birthday cake. And so it was pretty balanced as far as glycemic load and it was still dominant in fat. It had a lot of melted coconut oil in there. Um, but just that little bit of coconut flour, most of my recipes that include co coconut flour have like a tablespoon or maybe an eighth cup, which would be, you know, two tablespoons max and predominantly are coming from nut flours because those nut meals or nut flour mixes have a little bit more density. Um, they have a little bit more toothsome to them. So they're, you can kind of sink your teeth into them. They tend to retain moisture a little bit better. And that's generally how I play is like a four to one or even a six to one or an eight to one ratio of a nut flour to coconut flour because that reabsorption of some of the moisture of the coconut flour can help to make something not be a wet bread. So for instance, when I say wet bread, I'm speaking to like a zucchini bread or a, again, banana bread type base or something like that. Uh, so I find coconut flour to have a benefit, but just kind of word to the wise, <laughs> yep. it's not a one-to-one -one replacement. No. And I'm thinking our, our keto coconut flour pancakes actually that I just put up, they do use about a quarter cup of coconut flour. Okay. It's the only flour in there. And um, it's mostly, there's so much fat and, and egg in there that I think okay. it balances it out quite well. Is and it melted? You, what? Sorry. That you do want a slightly drier texture because you want those pancakes to cook through pretty quickly. Okay. And is it, it's a lot of coconut oil in there? I haven't made them yet. Yeah. It's, it's melted ghee or coconut oil. So a quarter cup of that to balance it out. Okay. Okay. So I yep. can see that working. Yep. And so when you're using nut flours or coconut flour, you're going to get the benefit of a lot more fiber for sure. So there goes that argument <laughs> of you know a gluten-free diet not having enough fiber. Um, so you're going to get a lot more fiber actually, and you're going to get a lot more bioavailable nutrients. So you're going to get a lot of the benefits of like when we're talking about the nut flowers, vitamin E, um, which is so healthy for skin and cardiovascular health. Uh, you get a little bit of those plant sterile stanols to also help with vascular health. Uh, you get a lot of nourishing antioxidants. And so you're going to get a good bang for your buck on a nutritional level. And it tends to be a really good replacement, like I said, for muffins, wet breads. And then like you said, Becky, you can play with whether you go as low as keto with these foods or go more low glycemic, maybe like a, you know, 15, 20 grams of carbs per end product, or can even easily keep these items at, you know, the, the five to 10 gram of carb world, which would work for a ketogenic diet as well. Yes. And, and even things like we're starting to see a lot of like psyllium husk used, which we're not huge fans of as a, as a staple because it can bind some nutrients, but um, things like that in, in keto breads and even um, a keto bagel I recently made. Yeah. Tell me how that turned out. So you made an adaptation of Vivica's Yes. Uh, keto so she, we're, we'll be having her on as a guest in the next couple weeks, I think in like three or four, she's episode 79. So she's coming yeah. and yep. she wrote the book Keto Paleo. And one of her famed recipes is the Keto Everything Bagel. And it uses what? Egg whites and psyllium husk? It's egg whites and psyllium and a whole bunch of actually different nuts and or seeds within the bagel. So you're yeah. putting pumpkin seeds and pumpkin seeds and sesame seeds actually in the bag. That's awesome. Which awesome. was, it, it turned out pretty well. I mean, I haven't had a bagel in a really long time. So I kind of feel like my standard for comparison might be. <laughs> Maybe not <laughs> in New York. <laughs> right. I mean, my husband, who's like a bagel connoisseur weirdo, really liked them too. So. Okay. 
Okay. And, and yeah, I mean, so like you said, the Cilium mask also, um, there's a couple companies that are starting to use that. And yes, like Becky said, we don't like to recommend psyllium husk as a fiber supplement on a daily basis because it can bind minerals and drive mineral imbalance. Um, also electrolyte. And that's concerning, especially with the ketogenic population. But psyllium can be a great, you know, two times a week or something like that. A great alternate that we're seeing as an awesome fibrous bindy toothsome alternative uh, to the bread products. So that with egg whites is making a huge rearing comeback for kind of the lower carb paleo bread products. Yes, definitely. And then beyond just baking and treats, there are other swap outs that would be considered kind of more nutritionally dense alternatives, right? Yes. So, you know, often the argument is, oh, when, you know, the gluten-free foods have more sugar or are more refined, don't have enough fiber. Well, I am never re recommending a Udi's gluten-free piece of bread or an Udi's muffin. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to badger the brand. Any brand, fill in the blank, of a refined um, product that uses like potato starch and, you know, is still super high glycemic, high carb. I'm talking about subbing out for a ideally non-starchy vegetable, which is lower carb, higher fiber, like sub out your bed of grains for a bed of greens um, or sub out your pasta for zucchini noodles, right? Because then you're actually even getting the benefit of a higher fat, moderate protein, low carb diet, or even supporting a ketogenic lifestyle if that's your thing. Um, so removing gluten and replacing with non-starchy vegetables is something that can definitely be done. And then even if you need that starch or if you desire that starch or you're kind of in the middle and you're doing carb cycling or uh, working with a lower glycemic diet, then you can use things like sweet potatoes or like I mentioned, the Yukon gold potatoes, or you can use things like roasted beets or uh, you can use butternut squash. Um, and so you can use all of these foods in their roasted forms and you're gonna get no lectins. You're going to get um, less of those anti-nutrients, if any, depending on your choice of your uh, particular food and a lot more bioavailability, that means, of nutrients, including antioxidants, vitamins, and minerals. Awesome. So yeah, gluten-free does not necessarily equate healthy. Like there are gluten-free ego waffles out there and we don't want you guys oh, yeah. obviously <laughs> eating yes. that. Yes. Yes. So we're not recommending a replacement with anything processed. We're recommending replacement with whole Real foods, food. single ingredients. Yep. And in their most, uh, you know, non-processed, non-adulterated forms. Yes. Um, let's talk a little bit about a uh, couple of supplement recommendations. So we alluded to the DPP-4 enzyme, and then let's also yeah. talk about GI lining and how those can be protective if we are getting exposed to gluten. Sure. So both of these are fantastic things to keep in your artillery or tool belt. So the GI lining powder has L-glutamine, which has nothing to do with gluten, actually. Um, L-glutamine is an amino acid or a protein building block that is a fuel source for our enterocytes or the gut cells that make up that epithelial lining, that fancy term for the, the tender tissue that lines those villi, that creates 
the sealant on the tank, if you will, to protect against leaky gut. So GI lining powder is something that we use with every single patient that we're working with the inflammatory food panel and we're doing their gut rehab process and healing leaky gut. We always remove the lighter fluid or the pro-inflammatory foods and then we kind of seal the tank. And GI lining is something I use ongoing for anyone with inflammatory bowel disease or um, you know gut distress or drama. Uh, we talked about that secretory IgA. So if that marker is off, we use that GI lining powder also in sometimes in conjunction with something like colostrum to help to repair the gut lining. But GI lining is your first line of defense. And what I typically say, you know, most individuals um, for any sense of leaky gut will be doing a scoop every single night. And if you know you're going out to a friend's house to eat or something out of your realm of, of uh, control, I would recommend doing a scoop before consuming the meal as well as that scoop at bed. Or if you weren't able to anticipate, you could double down at bed and do two scoops or add a scoop in the morning. And that's gonna help to protect your gut lining from that damage or that, that exposure to the gliadin um, or any of the gluten-containing grains. And then the digestate enzyme that we have has the DPP-4 in there. It's just such an awesome digestive enzyme product. Um, so I recommend people to take that um, definitely with the largest meal of their day. When we get started, most people are taking about three to six of these capsules before every time they eat. After about six weeks of consistent use, their body has learned how to produce enzymes more appropriately. And then they use it with maybe their most dense meal. Definitely anytime they dine out to again, be kind of a, I say that it's an insurance policy versus a permission slip, right? <laughs> so it's an insurance policy that helps your body to break down the gliadin if you get any of that cross-contamination or exposure. Um, and then, you know, if you are planning to indulge in a gluten-based food, you might take two of the digestate enzymes and again, double down on the GI lining. So at least you're not getting as much insult or injury from your selected indulgence. And that's reasonable too. So you can be proactive and protect and shield your body as well as shielding would be the GI lining powder, and then as well as protecting the metabolism and the breakdown so that there's less of the reactive compound hitting the gut lining, and that's with the digestate enzyme. Yes, and I know you and I, whenever we dine out together, one of us pulls out <laughs> digestate from I keep them as diaper bag everywhere, yes, yes. yes. Uh, let's just close out with a couple of our favorite uh, swap out specific recipes that we'll link to in the show notes to replace some of those gluten indulgences. Yeah. And I would call out and shout out for sure. The Naturally Nourished oh, Cookbook yeah. is hundred percent gluten-free you guys. So if you're intimidated, or again, if you have a family member that you feel like would really benefit from going gluten-free, I think that this podcast should hopefully draw some light on, you know, what gluten is, if it's okay for people that are even healthy and this whole scenario, and then some things to look out for. And maybe pairing that with a copy of our cookbook will be an awesome introduction to how they can optimize their whole body health. So that's my plug. It has a 12-week meal plan. So when people are confused and overwhelmed with what can I eat, it's a great entry point And it has a huge spectrum from even including certified gluten-free oats in I think one recipe and a couple beans in I think one or two recipes. The remaining book is grain-free as well as gluten-free, but the whole thing's gluten-free. And um, there's about 60% of the recipes in there are ketosis friendly. So there's even very low carb to moderate carb recipes. So a really good spectrum for people that are tipping their toe into optimal eating and want to kind of experience what that looks like. And it gives them a 12-week meal plan to lay out how they can do that with pairing their grocery shopping and their meal prep. 
So that would be a huge thing. So any recipe yes, <laughs> right. of the hundred plus recipes in the, the um, Naturally Nourished Cookbook, and we'll definitely put a, a link in there with maybe a promo code for the next couple of weeks. And then um, things like our sweet potato um, toast or our cauliflower toast or, or the zoodles three ways. Um, you know, I think we name dropped a couple different things that are awesome swap outs. And we're always talking about removing the grain products anyway and subbing out for a more nutritionally dense food, like getting eggs on the breakfast table and pulling out the cereals and the toasts anyway. Um, you know, so I think that when you're following a whole foods based diet with single ingredients, it helps to um, kind of understand and wrap your mind around this process. Awesome. So that's it for today, guys. I hope we've shed some light on the continuing issue of gluten consumption. If we are still eating gluten or if we've got a family member that is still consuming gluten. So please share this episode with them, share with your friends and head on over to iTunes as well. And please leave us a five-star review so we can share our work with more people. Thanks for listening and uh, we'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.